five, scores! Rick Five. We've decided to get ourselves back in the game again with our podcast. Rick Five. Probably the craziest story that you're ever going to hear about hockey. We're going to be coming back to you on a regular basis. You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Welcome, everyone, to episode 103 of the Squid Meltem Leaf Fan Show. I'm Mike Wilson, the Elton Leafs fan. Joining me as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how's it going, man? Going all right. Going all right. You know, I, we just got back from uh, Manitoulin Island and uh, Cochrane, where we were up in the indigenous areas playing, and it was a blast. The last dinner we had uh, after the second game, though, was great because the Chief got up and spoke and said, okay, so anybody with gray hair gets to go up and get their food first. I said, oh, perfect. <laughs> so I got to go to the front of the line. <laughs> well, you know, age does have its benefits at times, you know, we find. You get the discount at the movie theaters. You know, we always ask for a senior discount and everything. You know, even though we're doing all these things, it does help sometimes. Yep. Well, Squid, let me preface our guest today. Before we bring him on, he made the NHL as an enforcer who's drafted. Uh, he was good at it. He adjusted at an early age to what he had to do to make it. We've had numerous enforcers on his show, so that's nothing new. We fans love nothing more than living the life of a professional athlete through their stories. And our guest today has ones that will curl your hair. He's written a best-selling book retelling his story. Mm-hmm. This is the part I wrestle with after reading the book twice. While it's a story filled with tales that leave readers and listeners blown away today, the real issue is the self-destruction of a human being who is in desperate need of help. Yeah, yeah, the player's responsible for his own actions, but the NHL society, did they let him down or do we let him down as a society? While we applaud the courage, determination, and strength that took him to turn his life around, no question about that, the alarming part, he wasn't and isn't alone in this regard. Now, I know that sounds like a really cheery introduction for this poor guy, but please, without further ado, welcome our guest, Brent Myers. Mizey, thanks for joining us today, and how you keeping? I'm doing well. Uh, actually, it's just first day of snow today, so uh, it's a good, good time for a oh. podcast. Oh, perfect. Oh, snow? <laughs> yeah, in, uh, in cold, cold Lake, Alberta, so... Boy, I'm looking out my window and it's probably about 58 degrees and sunny. So uh, <laughs> I don't I don't mean to make make you feel bad, Brent. But <laughs> oh no, we had a you know what we had such a an incredible September and October that uh, I was out trick or treating with uh, with my little uh, my little little one last night and it was um, seven degrees and and that's not too bad for the 31st of October. So yeah, well, I'm no, not going to tell you guys where I am. So I'm in Florida for a week, so it's warm here. So it's, uh, but I haven't oh. been outside for two days. So there's my saving grace. I've been actually inside doing work. I think we just cut off uh, Brent. We've got to put him back in the screen there. Let's get him back in. Okay, there we go. All right. So let's start at the beginning. You grew up in a small town in Alberta, Swan Hills, in a trailer park in the middle of oil country. You started hockey at an early age, but your reason for playing was different than most kids. You didn't exactly come from a Leva to Beaver family. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that was my earliest memory, I think, was was Swan Hills in the trailer park with, with my mother and my sister. 
Um, I think I was only maybe four or five. And then uh, it was my first memory of skating. And um, and then it was obvious. And then my first memory of, um, I guess you'd say, domestic abuse uh, with my mother. And um, so I, once I got out of Swan Hills relatively soon, to uh to go to my grandparents it was um it was always a a nice uh, a nice i think it would have been maybe six hour trip yeah well i mean i i guess i guess i uh growing up like that in that environment did that have any uh kind of effect on you later on in life is uh you know i mean that's not something that children should have to go through and i'm just mm -hmm. wondering if that maybe had any effect on you later on in life yeah uh rick i i you know it's i think writing the book was pretty heart-wrenching for me to go back and try and sort of relive that that little child's memory you know and uh mm -hmm. But I carry I carry that stuff with me till today. It's not that stuff doesn't go away. No. You know, I no. I, I worked on it in treatment for eight months, and um, but it, man, oh man, that I, I think that when when children aren't protected by their parents when you're little, um, it, it it that that kind of stuff has a everlasting effect on uh, on your psyche, and then, you know, when I went to live with my grandparents who I write in the book are like my, you know, my, my, uh, <clears throat> my saviors. You still wondered about your parents mm -hmm. and my dad, my dad, I never really saw that much until I was about 12. And my, uh, my mom just lived down the road from my grandparents. So couldn't really put two and two together. I'm like, well, mom doesn't live that far away and dad's not that far away. And, uh, so, but again, you know, until I went into my fifth and final treatment center in, in 2007, uh, where I got to really, uh, as they say, peel the onion back, um, you know, I started to make a little bit of peace with it all, but I'll never be, never really understand until I get maybe to the pearly gates and get that, ask some serious questions there. Well, we had Jim yeah, Thompson, no, I... Thompson, I don't know if you know, he no, Jimmy or not, but he went through a similar background, came from out West, same similar type background, but, you know, and he had his struggles along too, but, uh, you know, he seems to have righted the path uh, himself yeah. uh, recently. Now he's coaching hockey and involved, but I want to get to your father who, even though he had a troubling relationship with him at times throughout, you know, as we read throughout the book, he was a strong influence on your growth as a hockey player. Yeah, like I, I think as all young boys look at their dads as heroes, and and um, when he wanted to come into my life when I was twelve and moved to Edmonton and play, uh, he coached my Pee Wee hockey team that year, and um, my dad was just so influential in, uh, like, literally when I tell you guys this, this is this is the truth. Like, my dad never missed taking me to. There was shinny every night. Um, and it was around seven o'clock Parkland arena, uh, or even in mill woods. And, and my dad never missed. And my dad, um, I remember him, I think he had to borrow about $40 from a friend of his to take me on a, on a weekend, uh, like a little, little tournament trip. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so really, like, he didn't have a lot, but but what he did have, he gave to me, you know. And obviously, when I went to um, junior in the Western League, he moved to Portland when I was 16. And uh, and then I got traded to Lethbridge the next year, and he moved to Lethbridge. So my dad, like, never never missed a game. And he was a real supportive role for me, even once I got drafted. I remember him saying, son, this is... This is nice, but this is uh, just the first and, and really small step to hopefully, uh, you know, a long career. Well, yeah, it's you funny. Know, uh, yeah, go ahead, you, you mentioned that you never forget those things. And, you know, it's uh, you're right. Uh, I, I mean, I've probably been through kind of similar things. And, you know, one of the things that I recall was the fact that and wrote it in my book was I don't ever remember my mother or my father saying to me, I love you, you know, and it was one of those things that, that I, I never forgot, you know? And, and so when I talk to my two boys uh, in any conversation, I never end that conversation unless I tell them I love them, you know, because I do. And I want them to know that, you know, I want them to realize that their father cares about them and, you know, I growing up, I just never felt that in myself from my parents. And I guess you're right. I guess I'll never figure it out until, like you said, you get to the pearly gates and ask a few questions. You might get the answers. Yeah. <laughs> well, I also, I, I also, you guys didn't realize um, what my parents went through at such a young age. I mean, my mother got. My mother had me when she was 18. My dad had me when he was, I think, 20. And now that I have children, like, <laughs> I, I couldn't fathom trying to take care of children at 18 years old, you know? So as they say, you know, they were doing the best that they could at the time. And um, so, yeah, my, my dad passed away um, I think it was about three years ago now and uh i really miss him like it's you know it's it's crazy that even though i write in there that we had a lot of uh indifferences and a lot of that was my fault and that was on my shoulders for the character that i was um i guess embarking on as an as an addict um and you know lord knows how many other people i let down um but today i think that um of the man that I, that I'm still trying to turn into, but definitely made a, made an effort uh, a lot of years ago to change. Well, I, you know, I mean, I don't want to give away too much of the book for people who we hope will go and read painkiller because it's a definite must read. And, and I'm going to say this right now as an avid mm-hmm. reader of books, it's one of the most, I don't know what you want to say fascinating, but it's one that really struck a chord with me. Mm-hmm. And I just want to frame your situation a little bit more for you so people really get an idea of what you were faced with growing up. And you're this kid that could never get a break. I mean, even a simple gesture on the part of the Big Brother program, trying to help you and reach out and help, you turned out that the guy who picked you was a predator. Yeah. You had to deal with this as a kid. I mean, how it's just absolutely mind-boggling that you would go through this before you even 12 years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that was something that I was I think I was 10 when I had the big brother 
And um, it was interesting. That story actually wasn't in my manuscript uh, that, that I wanted published. Uh, but my publisher who was, or my, sorry, my editor who was amazing, his name's Nick, Nick Garrison, um, said, okay, we're done. And he goes, uh, anything else? And I'm like, no, man. I go, I've, I've literally, literally, <laughs> what you want. <laughs> I go, I've told you everything. And he goes, are you sure? And I go, well, there's this one thing that I haven't, I've never told anybody. And he goes, like, you've never mentioned it to anybody. And I said, no, I haven't. I said, it happened when I was 10. And he said, well, why don't you write it down? And he said, send it over and, and uh, we'll discuss it. And I, and I wrote it, wrote it out and, he just called me and said, uh, you know, Brand, he said, there's so many things that you already put in this book to hopefully try and help somebody. He said, maybe, maybe this is another one. And, uh, yeah. and that was, that was tough because that's another thing I haven't gotten over. You know, there's so many things in that book and that's why it's hard for me to even read the book um, is because it, it just, it just starts slicing and dicing. Um, you know the the trauma i think as a child but uh and maybe that had a part to do with when i got older that i the, the role that i played was to protect other people because maybe i wasn't protected when i was little yeah i think that, i think that's probably a fair assessment and like i, I like what you said though because it was similar with me my mother had four kids by the time she was 22 years old yeah and i mean i couldn't even imagine having four kids when I was like, my dad might have been a couple of years older. Yeah. Uh, he might have been 24, but still, that's pretty young to have four kids, oh. you know, and try to keep things together. And I, I can't even imagine going through that as a as a 24 year old. I mean, I, I, I don't think I could have done it. I know. I know. It was, you know, admirable to say the least. Yeah. Now yeah. And, you know, and, and in saying that, you know, the fact that I, I mentioned what I mentioned before, but, but my parents did without, uh, without going out for dinner or going on trips or anything so that we could have, you know, hockey equipment, good hockey equipment and stuff like that. So I give them a lot of credit for get, you know, for that, because it, it helped me pave my way to the national hockey league. Um, you know, there was a lot of other things that weren't great, but, that was one of the things that I'll never forget is that they never, they always made sure we had what we needed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now around your peewee year, you became infatuated along with millions of others with this skinny kid for Brantford, Ontario playing for the Oilers by the name of what well, you're smiling already, because I know this is a big part of your life. Wayne Gretzky. Yeah. I want to bring this up because the admiration was there for you at the highs of your life and at the lows. And oh, I'll take yeah. a one. And I'll take it one step further. Even this discarded roll of used tape was an oh. inspirational reminder for you. And maybe you want to tell that story. Yeah. I, I, my dad bought me a ticket and, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't low. Like it was in Northlands Coliseum, Ricky, you remember? Like yeah. you could get, you could get top seats for eight bucks or something. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, as I was walking down that um, I just saw two open seats literally right next to the owner's bench. And I just went and sat in it and nobody kicked me out. So I remember, I remember Wayne coming off the ice and I wasn't, I just loved everything. The shirt tucked in the baby powder on this, all this stuff. And uh, 
so he t- comes out and he takes his tape off his stick and he throws it on the ground with all this spit and whatever right and i looked at the trainer and i just said you know i begged him i said can i can, I, can you grab that tape <laughs> he's like what so i grabbed the tape and i i literally had it next to my bed uh for a few years i i just was infatuated uh with Gretz and uh you know that that stayed with me uh for a long time yeah well how, how old were you then i think i was 12 when that happened yeah and uh so when i when i got drafted by tampa bay when i was 18 um i remember them uh drafting brent gretzky and it, mm-hmm. i just to me Brent was just as big as Wayne and Walter was just as big as Wayne and <laughs> and Phyllis and Glenn and you know like uh, I just uh that whole thing I used to have dreams about skating in their backyard and you know all this kind of stuff so it was it was, it was pretty cool it was funny uh, it's funny that you mentioned that I had a similar thing when I was 12 in PEI so the Montreal Canadiens came in to play their farm team, the, the Halifax Voyageurs. So I skipped school with three of my buddies. We waited for the trainer. He came. He said, do you want to help bring the bags in? We said, yeah. So we took them in. He said, okay, be back here at whatever, 4.30, 5 o'clock. He says, you two guys go to the Voyageurs. You guys stay here. And here I am in the Montreal Canadiens dressing room, handing out socks and tape to – you know, Bellevo, Lafleur, Cormway, you know, I mean, shut, you name it. They were, you know, they were all there. And then he gives me a track top. He says, take the six over to the bench. And I'm, and I know my mother and my aunt were in the stands and I'm walking across the ice and I hear one of them say, that looks like Rick. And he goes, it is, it is. And they start screaming. And it, but, you know, what an experience as a, a 12 year old kid to be in a room with all these legends of the game and, and yeah. handing them socks and tape. And uh, it, it was, it was remarkable. And then uh, the world juniors, when I was 18 years old, we dressed in their weight room. They took all their weights out. They put stalls in there. So we're, we're showering in the Canadian showers. We're walking around the dressing room every day. We get to watch some practice every day. And I mean, you know, I, I consider myself pretty lucky to have had those encounters. And, and I, I think it helped me uh, down the road when I got to the NHL because, you know, I, I respected these guys so much and, and had the opportunity to meet them when I was a kid. I, Rick, I wish I could show you my – so in my, gra- in my room in the basement where uh, my grandparents um, – my dresser and I, I was a big fan of putting posters on walls and Wayne was on one side and Mario was on the other, right? <laughs> and, uh, but my dresser, I had these, uh, these hockey cards that were sticky and, and Ricky Vive was on there. Ricky Vive, was on there. <laughs> you were, you were next to Dave Brown. <laughs> And well, no, I, well <laughs> I didn't. I never got very close to Dave Brown. I didn't want to. <laughs> Not many did. But you were, you were, you were one of my hockey stickers on my on my desk when I was little. And wow. uh, and there was, yeah, I just remember McCrimmon, you, Dave Brown, uh, and then I can't remember, but I remember Rick Vive. Yeah, yeah, the, the helmet, the bigger helmet, right? You had the. Um, 
anyways, yeah, crazy. The Stan Makita helmet. The Stan yeah, Makita yeah. helmet. <laughs> yeah. The round bucket. Yeah. Now, now, Mike, so you, your, your first tape of junior hockey came with the trial with the Bonneville Pontiacs. Now, if people don't realize, like, the way you described this team, it was like a scene made of a slap shot, the way these guys looked and acted. It, it was junior B. Yeah. Um, I was 15, and my I could have played midget or – and my dad said, well, you know, that junior B league's pretty good. And it was a pretty decent league, you know. Um, but I was a skinny kid at, at turning, just turned 15. And um, I went to camp and I made it. And, and as I write in there, it was, oh, man, oh, man. Um, from walking out in, on an Indian reserve in Saddle Lake. And I just remember uh, they would spit uh, tobacco at you, chewing tobacco. And I was one of the only kids that had a, a full face mask on back then because I had to. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it literally was something like at a slap shot and, and uh, it, that whole uh, hazing thing that happened that I write about was horrifying as a young kid. Um, and thank God it was only 10 games, you know, and, and that, that league folded and now they're the they're the Bonneville Pontiacs Junior A team, which is a great yeah. uh, organization. But uh, I didn't want people to get the two mixed up because they were called the Pontiacs too, the Junior B team. <laughs> well, but these guys were loaded with tattoos and wow. beers, and they just were like a rough, roughest looking crew. And here you're a skinny 15-year-old kid looking at this, and you're thinking, well, am I in a motorcycle gang, or what is this? You guys remember the Ultimate Warrior? The yeah. I swear to God, yeah. this is a true story. This guy... But his name was his name was Ren Land, and he came in with the face painted. He had the and he had six 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 written on the back of his of his shirt. He had war paint his hit, and it was just like Metallica was going like crazy in the dressing room. And I'm like, what am I doing here? And finally, my dad just he said, "You're done." You're done. And, uh, yeah. Like what did what? you like? What what is going through your mind at that point? You're 15 years old and you're you're seeing all this stuff. Like, well, I mean, that's see, incredible. See, I I also thought, oh well, if Junior B's like this, because I was listed already at that time by Portland, and um, oh, okay. I I thought, well, what's Portland gonna be like? <laughs> <laughs> If this is junior hockey, what what am I getting myself into? And uh, obviously, the Western League was very professional and and so different. But yeah, it was crazy. Well, for those listening, you don't understand. If you're listed, it means you're protected by a junior club and they own your rights. And this was an age when uh, Brent would have been separating himself from the pack and so standing out. And they, that's when they go and try and protect these players. So talk about it. Took you a couple of shots, but you finally made it with the, in the WHL with uh, Portland. Yeah. But it was also during that period where you changed directions as a player, using more, let's say, your pugilistic skills that you didn't realize you had, uh, and now all of a sudden started get everybody's attention. Yeah. So that would have been um, uh, my first camp. Uh, yeah. With the, Warner, with the Warner Hawks. Yeah. That, yeah. That I was. <laughs> I was sixteen there. <laughs> crazy <laughs> and uh you know it's funny because uh i tried to uh 
tuck my shirt in like Gretz. I thought that would help, but (laughs) (laughs) you got it in the front. Uh, Yeah. And I got it on the wrong side. He did it on his right side. But, um, um, so anyways, I ended up fighting. My first fight ever was a backup goalie after the scrimmage ended. And, um, (laughs) I found out at that point that I was left-handed because I never fought before. And uh, I did I did really well. And then the next the next camp, um, I uh, I I fought a, a kid named Josh Erdman, who was another big high high profile sixteen year old. And we fought three times in the same game um, as a sixteen year old. And uh, so I think from that point on, after those three fights. They said, oh, six foot four, 210 pounds, you know, can skate half decent. And uh, let's let's give them a, a shot on the team. And then, yeah, I led the league as a 16-year-old in fights um, for 16-year-olds anyways uh, that year. And then um, my 17-year-old year was just pretty insane. It was almost every second night. Well, I just want to say something here. I, I'm going to take a quote from the book. In the book, you said, and I'm going to end a quote you here. You've never, if you've never been in a hockey fight, I can tell you what I learned that day when you started fighting. It's pretty great to win, but it feels even better not to lose. I was pumped, but the real elation I realized later was relief. Yeah, that's so true. Uh, and it, you know, and I'm not tooting my own horn, but never really got beat down in junior. And I had a lot of fights uh, over those three years. Um, I believe there were four years. And then we played, I, my, we played uh, Ottawa one night in Tampa and I fought a guy named Denny Vial and, uh, oh boy. <laughs> and Denny, Denny, Denny Vial's Jersey and everything came off right away. And I had nothing to grab onto, and I just remember the hearing the like the smacking sound, hey, and him literally saying to me because I was on my knees. He said, "Get up!" And uh, it was a it was the first time where when I talk about that losing feeling, mm-hmm. it was to me it was it was devastating. It was in Tampa, and there was nineteen thousand people, and. None of my teammates were standing up this time and clapping the boards, you know, like they usually do. <laughs> and uh, so I got my first taste of, of humility that night. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it definitely uh, it wasn't fun. What was it like? Uh, and I got to ask this because I, I, we had other guys on, like when you were going into a game the night before, like, was it difficult for you to sleep? Uh, was it tough, like, you know, thinking about who's on the other team and who I might have to fight that night? Yeah. Or is that so, something you adjusted to? Well, I think players nowadays, like I was talking with a friend and, you know, they do, some guys understand, like Luch, who came in the league in 08, mm-hmm. um, a little bit back then, but, we never got a night off. Like every every team had probably, I'd say at least two heavyweights on the on in the lineup. So for me, it was 
the day, the night before the sleep um, was obviously it didn't go very well. And then the pregame skate, um, when you go back and try and eat and and get a rest, and uh, I couldn't sleep. I wasn't one of those guys that that really looked forward to doing that 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 job. I I, I did it more out of trying to protect my teammates. Um, so I would try and maybe sometimes look for an excuse to uh, to fight somebody um, if they maybe just even hit my guy a little bit too high, just to get my own brain wrapped around that I had to protect them. <laughs> you know, and it wasn't even a dirty hit or anything. <laughs> you know, but so yeah. Well, it's funny. I remember my my first fight in the National League. We were playing Boston. We got, I go into the boards with Stan Jonathan, okay? And I don't know what the heck happened, but something happened and the gloves came off for both of us. Well, I hit him right square in the nose with three of the hardest punches I could throw, and he just went, Rrr. and I went, oh, no. So I grabbed on, and then he caught me with an uppercut, down, and then I'm kind of wobbling, throws me on the ice, and he says, don't do that again, kid. Yeah, and I said I won't. <laughs> <laughs> well, who is who is who were the who were the big boys on your team back then? Was Bomber there when you were there? No, no, we didn't have that. Like Jim Corn was supposed to be one of our tough guys. Yeah, um, we really didn't have anybody. I mean, until Wendell came in, but then you know we didn't want Wendell fighting that much because yeah. we wanted them on the ice. Yeah, and, but. Yeah. I mean, we had uh, like Barry Melrose, but, you know, I, I didn't consider Barry, you know, a heavyweight. Like when we would play Edmonton, they would have Mick Sorley. They would have, uh, oh, God, uh, what's, I forget his name now, but the, the real tough guy, Semenko. Uh, yeah. Then they had, uh, they well, they had about five guys. McClellan. So whenever you played them, I mean, you know, you, you didn't go after anybody because they had five guys that would be coming after you. Yeah. I was going to say, okay, Mike, now here's where you're in with the Winterhawks. You're all in. Uh, guys, I'm sure, challenged you. And no sense being a good fighter if you want to move forward and take it to the next level. Now, Shockey, you have to show them that you're a great fighter. Or I, I'm maybe I'm fair phrasing here, but is that kind of the attitude you had to take to get yourself really noticed? Well, I, th I think more to be an active fighter, so to fight yeah. a lot, to fight a lot. And, and my dad said, you know, son, you, you know, you're 17, it's your draft year. And um, how bad do you want to get drafted? And I said, well, obviously, dad, I want to get drafted really bad. And he said, well, you're going to have to go out and lead the whole Canadian Hockey League in fights. And I said, I'm like, the whole league? <laughs> he's, like, <laughs> he's like, yeah. He says the whole league, <laughs> and he goes, he goes. If you lead the league in fights, he said, I promise you, somebody will pick you. And uh, so I did. I yeah, I led the whole Canadian Hockey League in fights, and um, you know, uh, again, it was, uh, it was. In a way, it was good. My dad was in the stands for a lot of those games because, um, you know, I. You're always looking and yeah, I knew where he sat, same spot every night. And, uh, you know, just gave me that little extra um, confidence booster, maybe if he was if he was watching. 
Now, wow. now, well, how big were you at that point in, in junior? Oh well, I was, I was done growing uh, height-wise, so I was six four, and then I, uh, my seventeen-year-old year, I started to put on quite a bit of weight. Like I, I think I got up to maybe six four two to 18 maybe something like that um wow. yeah this was my uh yeah this was uh 90 91 i got drafted in 92 so this year i was about six yeah 210 pounds and then the next one i i put on some weight maybe 10 an extra 10 pounds maybe um but uh yeah, it helped to to be tall, and it helped to you know weigh around that two twenty mark, and then and then to be a left hander as well. Well, now, I know uh, my my son was drafted in 07. He's still playing in the ECHL in Cincinnati. He's a captain, player, assistant coach. He's six six two forty five, <laughs> but he never got that opportunity to play in the National Hockey League. You know, and no, it's just one of those things. But he enjoys playing and. And he he's the same way. Like he doesn't fight that much if he, if he doesn't need to, unless something happens to one of his teammates. And if yeah. something happens, he'll be the first guy there. And, yeah. Uh, exactly. You know. But and I love watching him play. I've always loved watching him play. And uh, in fact, they played this morning at ten thirty in the morning. I said I, I can't even imagine playing a hockey game at ten thirty in the morning. But it was one of those school day games and. I said, I don't, how hard would that be to play at 1030 in the morning? Like, I can't even imagine. Yeah. Well, Squid, come with me. You can play one of my beer league games, okay? And you'll, you'll get a real, <laughs> real fast how it is, okay? And 1130 at night, too, okay? You can have both. Oh. So, okay, my, okay, now, Brent, in junior underage to drink when you first went there, and you really didn't partake with the lads at first. Now, obviously, being a junior hockey player, small town, all the adulation you get from the fans, the media, et cetera, girls, all this stuff. Going. When did the gloves arrive? I'm trying to make a joke here. Rather, the bottle top come off and it start to go off unwind. Uh, when I got traded to Lethbridge because we couldn't drink in Portland. Um, then I actually, to be honest, I wasn't even a drinker at 16. Like I, as I write about it, I just pour the beers out. Uh, uh, yeah make it look like I was holding a can because I didn't want to feel left out. Um, but there was this country bar in Lethbridge that uh, I remember I, 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 I don't know who it was that ordered 50, 50 drinks and they were, they, they back then, you know, they were Ryan Coke. And uh, <laughs> I just, <laughs> I just remember drinking it and hearing the music playing and the, seeing the girls dancing. And then I had two, and then I had three, and and then I was in Wonderland. And and um, it uh, from that moment on, it it something sparked in me that uh, that this was something that I was never ever going to give up, no matter what. And as, as I write about it, it I, I, I rode that horse a long way <laughs> without, <laughs> without getting off. <laughs> yeah, you did. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, it's funny. You remember that first time all the time. And I remember so it was very similar. Like, it was like, it made me feel, it, it, it relaxed me, I guess. And I, I felt good. And, and, you know, then I, you know, but. 
you know, it, it's it's kind of catch twenty two situation where you know you, you do it, everything's great, but later on it, it it becomes something that you have to battle, I guess, to get out of uh, because it's not working. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It stopped working. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. now every the fans love the brawlers. They always do, and they always like the big guys. And now, so here you are again in town, and and I'm sort of leading you into this also. And I'm assuming that the answer is going to come. Um, by this point in your career, you're probably very popular with the fans, but that extra attention can be good and bad because while you're getting the attention of the girls and the extra people in town, there are guys out there that look at you and they figure, well, what's he got that I don't have besides the fact he plays hockey? I want to challenge this guy, so I'm sure – Trouble followed you that way as well, and that didn't help your situation. <laughs> sure, the, the the bar fights, yeah, the bar fights. Um, you know, I really lucky. A couple of things that I've never been uh, charged with were were bar fights or drinking and driving. As the amount of times that I was in both of those is pretty wild to think that nothing bad happened. Um, but yeah, no, the, <clears throat> but again, it, the, more of those fights had to do with somebody, one of my friends getting picked on at the bar mm -hmm. versus me just like wanting to go out and fight somebody. Cause I, I, again, I was doing it all the time. My knuckles were all beat up. Uh, so I, I wasn't looking for fights, but after a few drinks, if one of my friends got picked on or, or a girl got, you know, touched the wrong way, then then I would try and uh, handle it. Um, wow. Well, I was going to ask you also then, so your draft night, the night of your draft, well, you get taken by Tampa. You thought you were going to go higher. Your agent thought you were going to go higher and you did and you got, but you got drafted. So that, that's the good news. Um, talk about your interaction first. Well, first off, there's two things. One, the night of the draft, you went out on your own after, and this time you were full fledged into the party. And what was your mindset at that point? I mean, where I'm going with this, did you just think this is part of who I am, what I do? So I'm just going up now that I got drafted, that part of the day's over with. Now I'm doing this. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, like to me, it wasn't really that big of a problem at that time. Um, I just I just turned 18 and the draft was in the summer. And, um, you know, I didn't really think anything of it other than everybody else at the draft was out too <laughs> you know <laughs> like like when you're seeing it, all your other teammates out and and everybody's doing the same thing you are you know it's 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 sort of hard to go well what am i doing wrong at this point um yeah. but it it wasn't until a little bit later on where i'd start to um or i wouldn't go to bed till five or six in the morning and then try to practice at 10 o'clock that's when you you know you knew that oh geez like this is taking a priority over my job. And um, that's when I started to notice it. Now, talk about your interaction with Phil. Now, there's two stories here. One, your first time you meet Phil. I'd just like to know what, what the exchange, but also there's a very funny story in the book about your in your first camp and top pick Roman Hammerlick. Yeah, yeah. Hammer, that was, yeah, that was, that was crazy. I can't, you know, I think I wrote about it how he actually he dropped his gloves first that, that yes sport. yeah and um so the first time at phil was uh the draft night and then i just remember he was talking to brent gretzky and you know i was just 
that I couldn't believe where I was, you know, and uh, he was awesome because my grandparents were there, my sister. And so he talked to everybody and um, he said that he I just remember him saying he goes, the fans are going to love you. And uh, I, I, you know, you take that at, and, and cherish that. Uh, and then uh, obviously when that happened with Roman, um, you know, we, we fought and then uh, to see him come running down the, running down the stairs and screaming at me. And, <laughs> but it was all, it was all, I guess, like a, a PR move maybe. Um, Cause deep down he loved it, you know, and uh he told, well, he told me, you that the next day. He told me he loved it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so it was a pretty, it was a, it was a pretty cool, pretty cool story, and excellent, excellent general manager to, to play for. Squid. Yeah. The, so that's the beginning, obviously, and then obviously as time goes on, things get a little bit more out of hand, and and that sort of thing, like. I mean, I remember those times myself. And uh, now the league was a little different when I played where, you know, uh, you know, they didn't look at that as something bad, you know, when if you drank a lot or anything. And but so the first time that that happened and, and the league came down on you, like, how did that feel? Like, obviously, it must have been terrible. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I remember that day really clear. Uh, Bobby Clark told me in Philly that um, he 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 knew that I was drinking a lot. He knew that I was hanging out with with uh, with Lindros, and um, that uh, he said that well, Big E makes eight and a half million, and you make 475,000. He said, who do you think's leaving? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I'm like, I'm like, well, that's probably me. He said, listen, I'm, I'm going to give you one more chance to, uh, to put the bottle down. This was probably around February. And, um, um, if I hear about you drinking again, he said, Brant, I'm releasing you. He goes, you're done. And, uh, so I think I had maybe like a week where I didn't drink. Um, and I was doing a lot of cocaine. That was the first team that I was doing a lot of cocaine with. And, um, so I thought I'd hide in a bar one night and I went in and had this, I had this hat. I had it pulled right down. It was after a game and I sat in the corner with this girl and drinking my beer and, uh, I didn't know this, but one of the head scouts was sitting um, at the same bar. <laughs> so uh, Paul Coffey called me in the morning and he called me Knuckles and he goes, Knuckles, he says, uh, he goes, uh, Clark, you put you on waivers. What's going on? And I go, I go, yeah, right. And he goes, no, he did. He goes, go get the paper. So I go, I'm driving to the rink hundred miles an hour and I get the paper back then. Cause you know, that's how you got your information. And, uh, yeah, Grant Myers on waivers. And um, so I went down to the Philadelphia Phantoms, and it was so bad that within, I think it would have been two weeks, because it was at the end of the year when I got sent down, that um, Paul Holmgren um, 
called me in and he said, uh, we want you, we, we want you nowhere where near this team. He said, pack your fucking bag. And he said, we'll get you a flight home. He said, but, but we want you fucking gone. And, um, so that morning I just had that first breakdown. I didn't know what to do. And, um, I called the league and I said, I, I don't know what's going on with me. I said, but <clears throat> I, I can't, uh, I can't stop what's, what's happening. And, um, they said, don't, don't worry. We'll have somebody there tomorrow to pick you up. And then I, I don't know, Ricky, if you know Dan Cronin or not, but, um, no. yeah. So they flew Cronin in and he flew me to my first treatment center in Los Angeles. And that was my first taste of rehab. Uh, that was the first, out of, the first one out of, out of the, out of the five that I, that I ended up going to. Well, we did, we had nobody that would from the league back then. I mean, there was no, there was nobody to talk to about that, uh, yeah. which was kind of sad, you know, like, uh, I mean, I knew I, I knew I had an issue, Yeah. but, but I had yeah. no one that I could talk to at, from the league or from our organization or anything uh, to get help. And, you know, so I, I mean, it was very, very difficult because, uh, and, you know, back then it was, it was different. Everybody was out, everybody was out drinking, you know, after every game, uh, almost every night, almost, you know, and, and, but again, not having someone that you could rely on to help you was very, very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my understanding is when Proby, Proby went to jail, was the and then he got out. Um, that's when the uh, the uh, the program was introduced. Yeah, it was it was made it was made after Bobby got out of out of jail to have some type of a rehabilitation program for the players versus just like when Fear got caught, suspended mm-hmm. for a year and see you later, right? Like yeah. So, so I think yeah, it was you know. Thank God for that program because if they didn't reach out on, um, I guess it was my fifth rehab, and I was done playing. Like they didn't have to pay for nothing, and they reached out and they flew me to Oregon and they paid for eight months of uh, inpatient treatment, and um, they paid for me to go back to school. And it was just, yeah, the gifts that you get, to, you know, when you're I think really, really at that point, trying to turn your life around. Yeah, that, I mean, they have that program now and uh, they had it mm-hmm. when I, uh, and they paid for me to go to rehab. Uh, the It was, I can't remember what they called it, but it was all the fine money would go into a, a fund that they would use for former players to, to get help. And uh, so I had to go through a process with the league and, and stuff like that in order to get, that uh, financial aid to mm-hmm. go to rehab, you know, cause it, I mean, it's expensive. It was, I think it was oh, like yeah. 40 some thousand dollars. It was like for 30 yeah. days. Yeah. And then, you know, it, it was kind of funny. It was, uh, I mean, it was the best thing I ever did in my life, obviously. Uh, but so it was supposed to be 30 days. And there was this girl that was coming off of cocaine and they, I forget what they gave her. Uh, there's something that they were giving her to help her come down from it. But anyway, you weren't supposed to bring food to your room. She did all the time. 
And then she would come into our group meetings and literally come in late and then fall asleep. And then during the meeting, somebody would say something and she would wake up and she'd put her hand up and then she'd start talking. And I said to the per, uh, the, the uh, person in our leading our group, I said, this is wrong. Like, you know, this girl comes in, she disrupts our, our, our group meetings and everything. The next thing I know, I get called up to the office of the head person and they said, we're going to keep you for 15 more days. And I said, why? They said, well, anger management. (laughs) Like, what do you mean anger management? And, you know, she said, well, uh, your leader in your group session said that you were very, very vocal and, and swearing at the girl and all that. I said, no, I wasn't. I said, I just made a point that she shouldn't be able to disrupt our meetings. And uh, so anyway, I ended up staying another 15 days. (laughs) (laughs) And the good news was Charlie Sheen was your uh, counselor in anger management. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I, I want to say, now, Brent, you you spent time back and forth between NHL and the minors. Uh, Now, I think that now by this time as we're now you're in rehab, your parting was getting out of control, obviously. But uh, there's two things here. One of the things I'd almost think it would be worse for you especially with guys playing at the string and soaking just the last few years, be almost more influential for you to go out and party with. And, but as we've said before, you know, you had this penchant for strippers. Now, as we've said in the show, a lot of times, any player who played in the NHL in the seventies, eighties, well, who doesn't? not one guy <laughs> can say he didn't go to Shea Puri in Montreal. Okay. At least. Oh, yeah. Once, okay? So that's, at least, yeah, at least. <laughs> one of the comments I want to make here, another quote from the book, that I found very fascinating was, you know, you were, you were, by this time you're full blown, you're an addict and, you, and you've admitted it. I spent a lot of time with strippers back then, more than most guys I'll admit, but it's not hard to explain why. They always wanted to have as much fun as I was having. And those are the kind of people I wanted to be with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, hence my relationship's not working out, you know, with women. Uh, because, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I just, I always, I, I hated the, I hated the word, like, you know, people would say, you just don't know how to turn it off, you know? And, and I didn't, I didn't know how to turn it off. I, I would always be the last guy at the strip joint when it closed. And then you're, you know, you're trying to take one of them out for a drink after or whatever. And the next thing you know, you guys are doing cocaine till nine in the morning and you got to be at the rink at nine 30. And, you know, I just didn't have a, I didn't have a button to turn off. And, um, but, uh, but yeah, they, there was no judgment going on when you had those girls dancing on poles. That's yeah. <laughs> now what about some of the guys you played with on Martin? Did you find it was the minors? Did they, you get, you, you could get in trouble anywhere at that point. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. And, it, and then if you got a bit of a bankroll, I wasn't making a lot of money. I mean, the most money I ever made was 650,000 us, I think back in the day. And, um, that was uh, 300 more than I ever made. <laughs> <laughs> and you scored 800 goals more than I did. <laughs> but, uh, but um, but but relatively speaking, right? It's it's it, you know it wasn't a you know looking back. I look, I was broke in uh, two thousand and um, five, like 
So I, I, all, all I'm saying is that when you, when you have a bit, little bit of a bankroll and um, especially in the summers, you know, Ricky, where there's no alarm clock and it's just hell's bells for a few months and uh, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. I, uh, it's tough. I mean, it's, I don't think a lot of people understand they, they look at it as something bad that you're a bad person they don't realize that it's a disease like cancer, like any other disease that, you know, you have it, you get into it and you don't know what to do. Well, you're not, you don't know how to turn it off. I don't think, you know, I don't think, I don't think a lot of people realize that. Yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's, um, well, you wouldn't, (laughs) You wouldn't look at somebody that was, like you said, had, you know, was dying from cancer and think that they're a bad person. I think that, I think that if you're not educated in this field, you think this is a willpower thing. Mm -hmm. You don't, you don't understand the disease, the brain concept behind it and the thinking that goes into it. And sometimes the rationality of, um, uh, like when I wrote about it in the book where I went to get reinstated in the, back into the NHL after being suspended for a year. And I decided to get a, a hotel room at uh, where the doctor from the league <laughs> is staying at. And, and I decided to like do cocaine till eight in the morning and our meetings at nine and thinking that's a good idea like that. So obviously that's, in, that's insane to think that way, but I didn't think so at the time. And, yeah. and that's where you talk about the disease aspect until I started to understand that I have something that like um, doesn't want me to do very well in life, you know, and, and, it, and, it, and it talks to me quite a bit. And, and how, can I, how can I quiet those voices when they appear? And then how can I differentiate those voices from reality? And uh, it took a lot of work. Well, to that point you just made and to that particular incident, that's one of the things that I found very troubling and not from your perspective, from the NHL's perspective, because there you are, the state you're in, you knew that this is all over here, like I'm done for officially as this. And then these guys proceeded to congratulate you on your sobriety and what a wonderful job you've done for the last year and welcome back to the league. Oh, yeah, that, oh, it was, you mean the... Yeah, when you're up all night and you're going and crossing these guys and they're congratulating and being sober and you, know, you can even keep your eyes open. Yeah, I don't know. Again, it's like I, I don't know how I was able to, to, to get through any of that stuff. Like, um, Brad, I, Brad, I think we were all good at hiding it. I, I think that's been, one of the things as an addict. Yeah, I think you're you're very good at hiding those things, I, as I found. I, I think you're right. I think that um, if I was really drunk that morning, I think the cocaine leveled me out um, mm-hmm. because I showed up and I, I wasn't like slurring or anything, but I was high, higher than a kite. And uh, I just remember when I, when I left, I said, did that, did I just, did I just, <laughs> did that just happen? Did that just happen? Like, am I, I'm getting reinstated after that. <laughs> like, now, was the doc was the uh, the doctor there at that meeting? Yeah, he was. 
Yeah, it was it was, uh, it was Mr. And Lewis. I mean, like what baffles me, I guess, from a league perspective is that like the doctor who knows about all this stuff didn't realize that. Well, you got, he, you, know? you, got to, you got to remember that he was he was taking he was taking um, he was getting information from Dan Cronin. Mm-hmm. And up and up until that point, I was sober. And I was oh, okay. going to I was going to A meetings and getting my things signed and all the things that they wanted me to do. So for me to show for me to show up that next morning, I don't, you know, it wasn't like there was a long history. I had, I think, six or eight months of sobriety behind me. Um oh. and it was it was like one of those scenes in that movie Flight with Denzel Washington, where mm-hmm. he's going into I think into the into the courtroom the next day, and he sees the the fridge open with the shiny bottles, and that was exactly <laughs> what exactly what happened to me. I opened up the fridge, and there there they were, and I thought maybe I'll just have one, and then you know watch a movie, <laughs> and uh, the it didn't. Yeah, it was just it was some wild wild times. Yeah. Well, you watched the movie. Yeah. You were just the star of it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what a lot of people don't understand is that you you think you can have one. They don't understand that that disease, you can't have one. Yeah. Because if you have one, it's then two, it's four, it's eight, it's 20, it's whatever, you know, and, and I don't think a lot of people really understand that. And, and that bothers me sometimes. 